Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 21st of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The start of the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine is at day 147. This is the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, speaking yesterday. If we look in hindsight, we see that months before the war broke out, Russia kept gas supply intentionally as low as possible, despite the high gas prices. And the Russians, uh, the president said, have not just been pushing prices up. Today we have 12 member states that are hit by a partial cutoff of Russian gas or a total cutoff of Russian gas supply. And overall, the flow of Russian gas is now less than one third to what it used to be, for example, at the same time last year. The impact of war in Europe is now being felt across the continent. Russia is blackmailing us. This, of course, is because of Europe's support for Ukraine. Russia is using energy as a weapon. Heading into next winter, the European Commission says we have to prepare for a worst-case scenario. We have to prepare for a potential full disruption of Russian gas. And this is a likely scenario. What we've seen in the past, as we know... Russia is calculatingly trying to put pressure on us by reducing the supply of gas. So it is a likely scenario that there's a full cutoff of Russian gas, and that would hit the whole European Union. A gas crisis in the EU's single market, our economic powerhouse, will affect every single member state in our European Union. Ursula von der Leyen outlined the unpalatable reality of the situation. We have to reduce our gas consumption. I know this is a big ask for the whole of the European Union, but it is necessary to to protect us. And so, to begin with, a request to all 27 European countries, including Ireland. We are asking the member states to reduce by 15% the gas consumption. 15% why? This is the equivalent to 45 BCM of gas. And with such a reduction, 
we can make it safely through this winter. That's uh, the President of uh, the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. Let's speak uh, to Karen Coleman, editor of EU News Radio, which covers EU news for Irish radio stations. Good morning to you, Karen, and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Ursula von der Leyen was talking about a union alert and that this would apply to all 27 member countries. I think the reaction here has been that the President did say it included us, but she probably didn't mean that and if she did mean it we look for a derogation next week uh, but what is uh, the uh, or how has this been received elsewhere well um, EU ambassadors were meeting yesterday and that's going to be ahead of an emergency meeting of energy ministers next week in Brussels I think there's been a mixed response to the commission proposals at the moment Um, of reducing gas consumption, as you heard there, by 15% from the 1st of August to the end of March next year. Um, I think I saw one quote today um, from one of those uh, diplomats um, talking about mission creep or commission creep, um, fears that the European Commission is maybe creeping too much into uh, very strong proposals that EU member states should be coming up with. But, I mean, such as the way geopolitics is at the moment. The Commission, you know, is coming out with a strong legislative proposal. So I think mixed reaction because this, of course, it's mostly applying to industry, but it is going to mean significant savings of gas stocks will have to be made. Mm. That is going to impact on businesses and industry. But of course, as von der Leyen was also saying, if nothing is done and Russia cuts off its gas supplies to Europe, which is a very real fear, then the implications will be extremely severe. So measures have to be taken. The European Council tasked the Commission with coming up with these proposals, and this is what they're suggesting. But I would say, you know, the talks next week will be difficult. Um, so far, there's, there are no signs that there's going to be unanimous support for this. But this has happened in the past, Michael. Mm. The Commission has come up with some very you know, severe measures, uh, initially very lukewarm responses from member states, but often they can pull together when they get together um, and discuss any alternatives that might be feasible. Um, So we'll see those emergency meetings now of energy Mm. ministers. I think they start on Tuesday in Brussels. Okay. uh, apparently it's up to each member state, each country in Europe to decide how uh, to reduce the demand. Uh, So... How do you go about that? I mean, do you put ads on television and so forth, asking people to turn the lights off if they're not in a room? Or do you turn your attention to data centres and ask them to switch down for a day? Or if none of that works, what do you do if you're not reducing the 15%? Do you switch the power off? Well, the governments, member states have to come up with their plans now on how to reduce, um, you know, their their emergency, national emergency plans. I think it's by the end of September. Uh, The Commission has come up with various proposals, but they are talking about industries, you know, in particular, rationing their gas supplies, their proposals, uh, you know, about switching to other fuels. And this has been controversial because the switching to other fuels certainly also involves switching to coal um, and maybe taking more coal in. Again, that's, you know, in the light of climate change, in the light of what we're seeing in in terms of the impact of climate Mm -hmm. change across Europe right now, you know, concerns that we may be going back into dirty old fossil fuels 
to try and make up the difference if there's a reduction in gas supplies. Um, there is talk as well, I think the Commission came up with proposals about national campaigns to get people to switch to, to save gas. Now, households won't be impacted by this in the way that industries will. The target is, is industries and any large consumers of gas. Um, households will come under protected um, uh, categories, mm. but obviously everybody across the board will be encouraged to make savings, turn off the lights, you know, particularly for industries, reduce their any consumption of energy that is not necessary um, and campaigns will come up. There will mm. be advertising, no doubt, yeah. campaigns mm-hmm. to do this. But gov- the member states will be obliged, if this all goes through, if the council accepts it, member states will be obliged then to come up with their plans on how this is going to be done. Okay, well, that's the situation as it stands and the Commission says that households will be the last to be affected by shortages, but they say if there are unforeseen circumstances or circumstances that you couldn't foresee at the moment, uh, they could be impacted uh, by large-scale disruptions from Russia and in the interim, we're all going to be encouraged, householders are going to be encouraged to contribute to saving energy by lowering or heating or cooling, air drying laundry, switching off unnecessary lights, improving home insulation where possible, uh, taking individual steps wherever possible uh, and to, to pull together on this thing because uh, we're talking about if we reduce our, our gas usage, which really allows for electricity and so on, uh, that we'll get through the winter. Uh, that we'll have electricity for the winter. Uh, but yeah. the winter after that I- is not certain at all, is it? No, well, I mean, <laughs> I think one step at a time because the, the looming emergency will be this winter. And, and we really, when you look at the, the extent of the forest fires across Europe this year, we don't know what kind of impact then climate change will have in terms of maybe more severe winters, colder winters. We could have floods this winter as well. So it's all about trying to ensure that we have enough energy supplies for this coming winter, the, 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 the title they gave their initiative yesterday was Save Gas for a Safe Winter. And who knows what may happen in the winter of 2023. So we have to deal with the immediate one, which is what happens if Russia cuts off the gas supplies, which is, which is a potential real mm. threat that could happen. And absolutely, you, you talk about the initiatives that individuals can take at the moment and one could argue these are things we should have been doing all along anyway for climate change such as lowering our our thermostats and and air drying laundry etc but obviously if Russia and we don't know yet the Nord Stream 1 pipeline has started again today and some may breathe a sigh of relief Mm. that at least some gas is now coming back into into Europe after uh, maintenance but we don't know what uh, Vladimir Putin may do in the coming months and use um, reduction in gas supplies as um, a, a, a further blow to Europe and to try and tinker with the European economies. So I think it's a kind of a wait and see situation at the moment. Okay. Um, and, I, you know, yes, households are protected right now. Uh, under these measures, they would be along with the likes of social services and hospitals and that. But clearly, if things get worse, then that may not be the case. And a part of the proposals yesterday included this um, union trigger mechanism, a union alert mechanism that would make it mandatory on EU countries Mm. 
to um, impose this gas reduction on them if they're not doing so. Now, again, all of this has to be run by EU countries, the EU Council, and they have got to decide whether or not they're going to go mm. ahead with the f- full package of Commission proposals. But there's no yeah. question about it. Uh, and that, over the- that, that might result in rationing that. There just wouldn't be a power available to you because you'd have to reach that 15%. Uh, it would be a legal requirement on each state. It would be mandatory for each state or for some of them. Uh, Talk to me about uh, the Irish response. Uh, Is the uh, attitude or the expectation here correct, do you think? Uh, Because uh, the European approach to this is one for all and all for one. Uh, It's European solidarity. Uh, We need to look at the gas supply uh, across 27 countries and do what we can to ensure that the 27 countries uh, will have enough to get through the winter. Uh, The Irish attitude appears to be, well, we're not included in that because we're getting Scottish gas uh, from the UK and we have gas in Corrup, so it doesn't affect us the same. So you can exclude us from all of those arrangements. Uh, How do you think this will pan out from an Irish perspective? Well, I don't think it's going to pan out well from an Irish perspective. And uh, von der Leyen, um, a, a big part of that announcement yesterday was her emphasis on the solidarity uh, clauses and treaties, um, which means in, in the gas context, I think, as they would interpret it, that would mean that if um, if member states, if certain member states across the bloc um, are struggling to find gas supplies, then the solidarity elements of uh, the European Union would require other member states to share their gas hmm. stock. So if there's no gas in Germany and there is gas in Corrib, uh, will that gas and carb could be used for Irish supply, but German supply and French supply and so on? Well, I think it, it gets very complicated, Michael, and I'm not an engineer mm. here, but I gather, you know, our, our, our gas is coming through a lot of pipeline connectors from the UK. Yeah. Um, so how are we going to get gas supplies that we may get from the UK? How do we get them over to Germany if they're going through UK pipelines which are outside of the European Union and I think this is an issue that's going on behind maybe not necessarily behind the scenes but in discussions about how maybe the UK may share its supplies with the rest of the EU or with the EU at least because Mm. now it's outside of the EU so it's not as simple a case that if we have excess gas here in this country, we can somehow supply it over to Germany because how Mm. physically are we going to do that? But the solidarity Mm. clause certainly means that, you know, we can't be stocking up and we're all happy here in Ireland, Mm. even if they're running out of supplies in Germany. Well, maybe we could be left relying on the gas that is available in Corrib and not uh, take advantage of uh, the gas that we're getting from the UK uh, because I, I think I heard, and I could be wrong, but I think I heard that the UK is already supplying more gas uh, than is agreed with the French because of a, a supply in France, a shortage yeah. of supply in France. Well, I think so, but then I think that may change during the winter time, mm. and I think maybe the UK takes, and I'm certainly not an expert in, in, in energy supplies, but I think the UK may then, under normal circumstances, take more supplies under you know, pre-war circumstances from the European continent. So I think that varies. And and because the UK is now outside the European Union, it isn't as simple as the UK sharing excess supply stocks. And of course, they may argue they need they may need the supplies of gas themselves, and they wouldn't be obliged to um, adhere to solidarity clauses as much as 
if they were within the European Union. Now, of course, there are all sorts of um, agreements made under the EU-UK Trade and Cooperation Agreement. But, Mm. I mean, certainly I don't think Ireland can sit back happily and say, well, thank God we get our Mm. gas supplies from mostly other um, supply stocks, including Norway um, and the UK, rather than Russia, because as von der Leyen said yesterday, if, you know, if you can imagine if Germany, um, well, she didn't cite Germany in particular, but if there is an economic recession caused by supply of gas or supplies of gas being stopped to those countries that are most dependent on them, including Germany, then that will have a severe economic impact on the bloc as a whole, including on Ireland as well. Uh, And as things stand, uh, there may be a derogation. There is talk of a derogation. There may be a derogation. But as things stand, uh, we're being asked to reduce our gas supply, which is how we have electricity uh, for the most part, by 15%. Uh, strange days, very strange days, really, when we're talking about wartime conversations in real time. Uh, thank you indeed, as always, for joining us uh, and uh, for your time this morning. Karen, Karen Coleman is uh, the editor of EU News Radio, which covers EU news for Irish radio stations. Michael Reed on LMFM. And indeed, the idea of going back uh, to coal because of a a shortage of gas does seem pretty bizarre, especially this morning when you see the report from uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is telling the government to stay within binding targets uh, that are legally binding or will result uh, in huge fines uh, for the government in terms of cutting greenhouse gas emissions, which rose by 4.7% last year. The biggest offender of all is agriculture with emissions from that sector uh, accounting for 37.5% of all emissions and when it comes uh, to emissions in agriculture uh, there is this ongoing debate uh, as to how much they should be cut by Uh, and there seems to be a divide in government and disagreement in government. The Minister for Agriculture seems like farmers to accept the 22% cut. The Minister for the Environment seems to think that it should be at the higher end of the scale, which is 30%. But how do you go about that? Well, again, speaking about the biggest offenders, you've got to look at the cows and the cows that are are belching because that belching that cows do uh, accounts for a lot of these emissions? Uh, The main emission source from Irish animal agriculture is enteric methane, the methane that's belched out. And you are in a lucky situation compared to the United States where we are not allowed to sell feed additives with a label claim of reducing methane. You can. You already have several tools at your disposal that have been shown in peer-reviewed and published research to reduce enteric methane. The question that your researchers have to uh, figure out is how do you get these additives into animals that are normally grazing? So for example, a dairy cow that's milked every day could be fed an additive in addition to the concentrate that she consumes while being milked. Uh, There are other approaches. Reductions of enteric emissions would be very uh, important in the Irish context because they constitute the majority of the carbon footprint of the Irish herd. So I think you have an advantage and you will reach your goals faster than we have been doing this year because um, your focus should be on enteric. 
Okay. Right, that's uh, Professor Frank Miltone, uh, who is uh, from uh, the Department of Animal Science at uh, the University of California. Uh, he, he was speaking there in front of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Climate Change, which met yesterday. Now, let's uh, speak to two members of uh, that committee, Green Party Senator Pauline O'Reilly and Independent TD Michael Fitzmaurice, who were both on the line. And a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Pauline O'Reilly, have we got the time uh, to discover this technology uh, in the way that it would be effective enough to bring down the emissions and to uh, reduce uh, the methane that cows produce when they belch? I mean, we've seen now that we have um, temperatures reaching 40 degrees in the UK. We've seen tens of thousands of people across Europe being evacuated. People are more conscious now than ever before of wanting a greener product when it comes to to their food. And we need to ensure that emissions are brought down drastically in all sectors of society. And that means if one sector is not doing its bit, everybody else is going to have to do more. So it has to be across the board. Some sectors it is more difficult on, that's recognised. So uh, while it's 51% that we need to bring it down by by 2030, there's a recognition there that there are some sectors where it's more difficult. But they have to play their part in a very drastic way. But we need to protect farm incomes at the Mm. same time as doing this. And so that's why you have heard at your break there about um, the the moves in relation to the organics scheme. A sixth of all emissions from agriculture comes from spreading fertiliser and that is actually uh, organics uses no fertiliser. So there's a mix of that. Anaerobic digestion can increase to, um, you know, millions. We can increase the, the, the incomes to farmers, but also we can then use things... Um, Hello. Yep. Hello. Yep. You've been placed on hold. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think we were getting to the uh, nub of the issue there. Let's uh, go to Independent TD Michael Fitzmaurice uh, whilst uh, we sort out that phone line with Pauline o- O'Reilly. A very good morning to you, Michael, and thank you uh, indeed for joining us. Uh, I think one of the solutions uh, uh, to reaching that thirty percent is uh, cutting the amount of cows rather than uh, the amount of methane in their wind. Uh, I think you'd uh, prefer the latter. Is it possible, though? First of all, Michael, I think uh, a few corrections need to be put in place. I know most media outlets, and indeed you alluded to it there yourself, you talked about the EPA emissions. The highest emissions since 2019 or 21 or 2020 is in the energy sector, 17.6% extra. So I don't want this crack going on, which has seemed to be a, a trend among the media of constantly farmer bashing, because people must realise that live in cities and towns there's the farmers of this country that will be the solution to the problems that Ireland have right around this country, not somebody that's living in a city. Through no fault of their own, I'm not blaming them or anything, but I think we need to make sure that we bring farmers with us, not again us. On top of that, Michael, I think we've signed up to targets that are unattainable, and I'm on the record at saying this between now and 2030. Yes, after 2030. And, why, and I, what I will explain to you in detail here now is that... In the line of offshore wind, we will have offshore wind coming on stream in 2030. As you put on there a while ago, Frank mm. Micklin, or he was in with us yesterday, yep. talking about um, say the different uh, solutions in relation to cattle. Um, and 
At the moment, Chagas is doing research um, and it's looking very favourable, but you have to do peer review when you have to go through the journal stuff and all of that. Second of all, there is a product coming on the market in, um, I think it's October of this year, that the EU has approved. On top of that, the US government has approved in California um, a new, basically an additive that you put in in the feed that brings down uh, the methane a lot. But let's people not get carried away either. We need to put things into perspective. We need food to make sure that people live. That's the first thing. The second thing is, if we were to get rid of every animal in the world, and this was outlined by the scientists yesterday to us, a third of all methane comes from the agricultural sector. But bear in mind that from gas that the European Union has now said is a green product, and from where dumps were um, down through the years in different countries are put together, 66% of the methane comes from that, which, to be quite frank and honest with you, there isn't a lot of control over. What we can control or what we can try and look at is the agricultural sector. And the new technologies, along with the likes of, you know, you talked about fertilizer there. Mm. At the moment, farmers are, are looking at the mixed species grasses to put them in, right? They're... There has been good results so far in the line of Devonish, the herbicide gene mead. Um, there has been good results in the line of sheep and cattle, and they are doing the, they're looking at it for dairy at the moment. That's a very positive uh, way forward. There are things that will be done over the coming years, but it's a backload. It's a backload, in my opinion, Michael. Being honest with you, I don't think we're going to reach our target. Second of all, you talked about fines. Ireland can buy emissions or uh, buy credits. Yeah. And on top of that, um, you know, big wonder this morning, why are we up on, 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 you know, that Ireland has gone over in energy and all of this? Well, the facts are that in money point, because to keep the lights on and basically more data centres and all of that, we have to use more coal and more oil. Why? Because unfortunately the wind hasn't produced um, what it was expected inland. But in my opinion, from 2030 on, Onwards, once we get the likes of the offshore wind going, you will see a totally different story. So we are now. Yeah, but just, just, to, just, just, Michael, we are now signed up to something that we are in the process of R and D, or a bit further on in a lot of it. In fairness. That yeah. will take another seven well, that that's years. the problem. That, that was the initial question. Have we got the time to wait for that? And just going back to what you said about the biggest offender being um, energy, uh, uh, it's agriculture. Agriculture accounts for 37.5%. Well, I talked, if you listen to what I said, yeah. over the last two years, yeah. energy the, has increased by 17.6%. Yes. And the reason being... And, but, and, but, but agriculture and, still uh, is responsible for more emissions. The reason being, and, and people need to put this into perspective, yeah, no, Ireland, Ireland is a You can put it into perspective, country. Michael, but the fact is that Michael, agriculture Ireland is the biggest is offenders. Ireland is country that grows green grass. If you were in Germany, industry is the big one because there's more people involved in the industry side of it, or heavy industry. Ireland, because of its nature, is able to produce quality food from a grass-based yeah. system. Okay, there are but you accept, you, you accept the fact from the EPA uh, that agriculture is the biggest offender? Well, obviously, this, obviously it's the biggest... Of, uh, it's not yeah. what I would call an offender. It puts out the most emissions. Why? Because we're an agricultural-based country. If we're an industrial-based country, you'll put out more emissions from industry. This okay. is the facts of, of where we are. But what okay. we are doing is we are have new systems coming into play 
As Paulie, you know, Dr. Okay, Dr. let me go back to Pauline, if you wouldn't mind, Michael. Uh, I'm not sure what happened to, to the phone line with Pauline, uh, but thanks for coming back to us. Uh, uh, and, and Michael Fitzmaurice does have a, a good point. Uh, we're an agriculture country, that's why there's more emissions uh, in, in agriculture, but you would still make the argument that we need to reduce emissions by 30%, not 22%, which he, Charlie McConnell, and uh, the farming bodies uh, seem to feel is more than reasonable. And I think that that's a good point. You know, we're not talking about every farmer. We're talking about particular uh, segments of um, of the the agri business that are that are um, you know railing against these reductions. The, the reality is, consumers want a greener product, I, and I did outline a couple of ways that mm. that can be done. But but so are multi species swords. That's absolutely correct. It is part of the solution, and farmers are taking to that like never before. And um, and what we need to do is. It is to support farm incomes at the same time. And that is why these schemes are turning green. Now, um, it, you know, to talk about energy. I mean, the targets for, for energy is 80% renewable by 2030. So it's not as if energy is not being expected to do its part. But every sector is going to have to do its part. And the wind is working absolutely Mm. fine across the country. But there's a reality to this, and that is that at the moment, Ireland's um, electricity is 50% gas. And we we absolutely have to protect our electricity wherever it comes from in the meantime. Mm. we're, We're practical. We're pragmatic in the Green Party. We need to support people at the same time okay. as as tra- transitioning to something okay. for everyone. If we have to, um, if we have to reduce um, our gas consumption by fifteen percent uh, as a result of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the gas supply, uh, as we've been hearing uh, from the European Commission. Uh, what what does it mean um, in terms of trying to reach these targets? Um, will it be possible to do that uh, and continue to power data centres or will we have to burn coal to power data centres? Well, there's a number of things in that. So firstly, Ireland doesn't get any gas. No, I know that. Yeah, but I I suppose what happens is that because 40% of Europe does, uh, it is impacting on the cost for us of the gas. Well, but we've been asked, as things stand, Ursula von der Leyen asked all... European countries to reduce emissions by 15% and to find a way uh, of doing that. We may seek a derogation, we may get a derogation, we may not get a derogation, but as things stand, we're being asked to do that and we be, may be legally bound to do it. And there'll be negotiations in relation to that tomorrow, um, but it is more a case of storing it up so that we have it for the winter. That's that's the approach being taken by Ursula von der Leyen. Um, but, you know, to go back to the data centre, suppose that there's been no, since we got into government, we haven't connected one data centre to the grid. Um, uh, unfortunately, prior mm. to that, there were a, a large number of data centres yeah. had been connected and we are seeing the effects of that. So what we have done in the Green Party is to put together guidelines so that data centres can't be connected unless they show that they are going to contribute. No, but what do we do about the existing ones if we don't have gas, uh, if we have to reduce our, our gas consumption? Do we burn coal to power them? Well, there's a short-term reality for, for everything um, and we can't just shut down industry okay. and, and you'd, be, hmm. you'd, be, you'd be up for trade problems okay. in the EU if you were to shut down Michael Fitzmaurice, so would you accept? Economy, economy matters to Ireland yeah, as well. So we would burn coal. Michael Fitzmaurice, would you accept let's, that? Let's, let's live in the real world at the moment. We, um, they're talking about the 15% reduction in gas. We may get irrigation, we may not. 
There's a reality here. In every data centre, there's generators. There's a full tanker load of oil is what will go into it. It's not, it's not even coal that will be going into it. Um, that's what will be used. And we have to keep industry going, as Pauline has outlined. And, you know, this this is why I'm back again to what I said at the beginning, Michael. You're signed up to something that, in my opinion, between now and 2030, regardless of what we look at, energy or whatever, we're not fit to achieve for the simple reason it is a stretch too far at where we are at the moment. And under the circumstances, no one could have envisaged a war. No one could have envisaged, like, say, the COVID pandemic that came along. The other thing that needs to be done, Michael, and this is where, you know, and I hear so much talk about it. Um, Pauline mentioned that they are anaerobic digestion. Anaerobic digestion won't go ahead unless there's a feed-in tariff. That's what we need to do to encourage people to look at different options. And yes, the new organic scheme, in fairness, yesterday, when it was announced, there is, um, it is more attractive for people that want to go into it. And you acknowledge what's good. But there is a lot of things being talked about that the funding um, to make it viable isn't in place at the moment mm. and needs to be done over the coming years. And that's why, and I'll stand with what I said, we won't be able to achieve what we have signed up to, in my opinion, to, uh, after 2030. Okay. Then you will see the rewards of what we'll have done from there on. All right, I'm over time, so a brief response, Pauline O'Reilly, please. We, we can't start from the line of it can't be done, so let's just not do it. I mean, that's not... I, that, that. I mean, Michael talks about a reality, a reality check. Just look across the globe at, what ha- at what's happening. Ireland can't say it's somebody else's job. No sector in society Never said that. it's somebody Never else's that. job. And I've, I've outlined at the start that we need to support farmers. Yesterday was a step, but there are other things. And supporting anaerobic digestion is absolutely what we have to do, as is indeed putting solar panels on farm buildings, all of these things that will bring in incomes. And, you know, I had a bill passed in relation to putting solar panels on farm buildings and school buildings indeed. Um, so, So all of these things are part of it. But we have to start by saying it's everybody's job. Here's what this sector is signing up to. And here's what other sectors okay. are signing up well, to. And let's well, support people and the most vulnerable in society. The, the Agriculture Minister and your party leader are uh, thrashing it out uh, as we speak as to whether it'll be that 22 Can or 30%. There, very, very briefly, Michael, I'm way over time. Yeah, there's nobody saying it's, it's just, we're passing the book or it's someone else's mm. job. You have to live in realistically yeah. what can be achieved under the circumstances. You're saying it's not possible to achieve and it. At and the in my opinion, mm. what we need to do is face up to the reality that for the next five, six, seven years, while technology, while we're putting in place the incentives for anaerobic digestion, okay. while we're doing all the things that will improve everything, we have to be realistic the figures I think I understand the point I hope our listeners too too, because I'm over time I have to leave it there thank you both very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning Michael Fitzmaurice Independent TD for Roscommon Galway and Green Party Senator Pauline O'Reilly Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to the AIB decision uh, to have another 70 of its branches, cashless branches. The Vintners Federation of Ireland is calling on the bank to reverse uh, that decision. Let's speak to Michael O'Donovan, who's uh, the chair of Cork City and Cork County branch of VFI. And a uh, very good morning to you, Michael, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. There's been a lot of concern about this, and I take it your members have a lot of concern for that matter. Yeah, it's it's a huge concern because you know it's it's causing worry now at the moment because yeah when we hear 
you know, 70 branches going cashless, it'll mean a lot of um, extra commuting. It'll mean a lot of extra cash being held on your premises because people, uh, some people will have to travel up to an hour to go to another branch of AIB um, to get change, to lodge money. Um, and in doing so, what members are telling us is that they are going to carry extra cash in their business because they won't do that trip, you know, maybe only once every two weeks, once every three weeks. So that in itself causes risks in their own business. Uh, they become targets and also there's an insurance implication because you'll have to tell the insurance company you're carrying extra cash which in turn will lead to extra premiums to be paid. So it's a huge concern and look at this stage we hope that AIB might reconsider this decision because um, mm. I know they've said that the post office yeah, will be an option. Say that, but can you not lodge money in the post office? Yeah, but in the post office, unfortunately, at present, there's caps on what you can do. Mm. You can only get €1,500 worth of coin per week out of the post office Mm. as a commercial business, and you can only lodge €5,000 cash per week to the post office. The AIB seem to be saying that with a a prior arrangement, you can increase that, I think, to 50000 is it? It, it is, they're, they are saying that, but then you have to go and set it up. Um, mm-hmm. And look, I suppose the problem is a lot of towns and villages have lost the post office, so there's not a lot of, uh, you know, <laughs> so, uh, you're, yeah, you're in okay. a scenario where that's happened. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, two years ago, some of our members were with Bank of Ireland. Bank of Ireland decided to pull out of some of the towns and villages, yeah. leaving AIB as the only bank in lots of towns and villages up and down the country. And now here we go again, AIB are deciding to go cashless. Um, and lots mm. of those villages have lost the post office. So, uh, like, of the 70 um, that have um, that AIB now are deciding to go, some don't have a post office in that, mm. that town or village. So it's of huge concern to them. And it well, I'm sure like it is, and particularly in rural areas, uh, as you say. Uh, and uh, we were talking about it yesterday uh, because we're told it's just the way of the world and everybody has uh, a credit card or a debit card or, or they have their card on their phone and nobody carries cash uh, anymore. But... Uh, what do you do? I was speaking to Seamus Boland of uh, Irish Rural Link yesterday and we were saying, what do you do uh, if you want an ice cream and you go into the shop and they can't take your card? Uh, And it's the same with the pub. Uh, I mean, a lot of pubs wouldn't be able to take your card, would they? Most pubs now would, but not all, as you say. But, you know, 60% of our transactions from feedback from our members are um, presently done by card. But that still leaves 40% done by cash. A lot of older people still use cash as their um, method of payment. So pubs, you know, inevitably, we are carrying cash. We are going to have to have change for this foreseeable future. Things might change, you know, 10, 15 years down the line. But the here and now, um, we, we definitely have to have cash. We definitely have to lodge cash mm. and we definitely need change to give to people when they give us the cash um, so you know it, it, mm. it's a major issue it's a worry I know they've said some branches will be uh, won't be you know going cashless until October but you know it, it's not a lot of time when you think of it we're in our busy season right now for tourism um, and you know a lot of people mightn't get to look at this until September so it's it's really worrying it's really concerning and our members are as I said really worried about it because of the extra commutes and also the branches that they are keeping as normal the the you know the amount of volume of people going to them will create frustration because the queues will be just big at those uh, uh, branches at present you know so adding more people into the same branch is only going to create bigger queues and more frustration Mm. Yeah, um, if uh, an arrangement can be made uh, with the post offices, uh, which AIB uh, says should be the case, uh, that's one thing. But uh, you've obviously got very significant concerns about having uh, a night's takings 
or a week's takings uh, uh, kept on your premises? It is. Look, as I said, that's an increased risk. So it's a major problem, a major issue and a worry for a lot of our members, especially a lot of the older members that would have that issue um, where they, you know, every second day they go down to their local bank, lodge the money. And I suppose the, the bank is kind of a private, um, I suppose, function. You go in, you do your business, you're gone. Where at the post office, you're queuing up with everybody. Um, you know, it, it, it's not as private as going into a bank. So that's an issue as well. Um, but look, uh, we're, we're just hopeful at this stage that uh, AIB might reconsider this decision. Okay. Well, it's the same, I suppose, uh, for your customers uh, or for people generally. If you're going to have a, a lot of money on your premises, uh, it's going to work uh, both ways uh, because people will have to take out enough cash to get them through the week or, or however long they might need cash for before they get back to the bank uh, and they'll have a, a, a lot of money uh, perhaps uh, in, in their houses as well as a result. Uh, I, I think there's very few people who are in favour of uh, this decision by AIB as to whether it can be reversed or, or not. It seems to be down to the bank. The minister said he can't intervene. Uh, have you any anything to say about that? Yeah, look, we're... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Yesterday we wrote to the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donu, and we wrote to the CEO of the of um, AIB, Mr. Colin Hunt, and we're look we're especially hoping that the Minister can step in at this stage, being the major shareholder in AIB, and maybe talk some sense to some of the uh, board of AIB because, as I said, this decision will really affect rural Ireland. And you know, at, at a time when we're talking about Green Party being in government, um, and you know. They're going to be forcing people to one-hour journeys, uh, two-hour journeys, three-hour journeys, return journeys. In some instance, you know, this is probably not the best, uh, I suppose, the best look for the Green Party. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, uh, Michael, for joining us on the programme. Michael O'Donovan is uh, the chair of the VFI branch for Cork City and Cork County. Now, if you were listening to the programme yesterday, you'd have heard us speaking with local Sinn Féin TD, Darren O'Rourke, about uh, the proposal from the HSE, or more accurately put, the decision of the HSE to close the emergency department in our Our Ladies Hospital in Navan. I said proposed because that decision has been uh, undermined by the Minister for Health who's told them not to close it uh, and uh, we also spoke about uh, the Dáil debate uh, the Sinn Féin motion uh, to keep the emergency department opened which happened on the 21st of June and in that debate the Minister said that everybody needed to get involved in meaningful discussions the HSE, the clinicians himself obviously as the Minister for Health the local politicians, the government politicians, the community uh, the trade unions and everybody to find 
find a, a, a solution to what is a problem, a problem on two fronts because the clinicians feel Navina isn't safe and the Minister feels that moving patients to Drogheda isn't safe. Uh, we asked the Minister what discussions, uh, what meaningful discussions or what discussions at all have taken place since the 21st of June uh, and a uh, spokesperson for the Minister uh, got back in touch with us and we'll read uh, that response. We said that we'd get in touch with the Department about this and our thanks to the Department of Health for the response. They say while recognising the very real clinical cer- concerns raised by the HSE, the Minister has been clear that several important issues including additional capacity in other hospitals impacted and the continued ability of people in the Navin area to access emergency and urgent care would need to be fully addressed before any proposed transition by the HSE. I suppose that's a, a, a long way of saying no, <laughs> no um, discussions have taken place uh, with anybody since the 21st of June. So what has happened? Well, let's go back to the statement, uh, because that tells us that the Minister has asked the HSE to undertake a process to review, validate and stress test the reconfiguring planning, uh, and that this process is now underway with a view to it being completed shortly. Uh, that's uh, the response that we got from uh, the Department of Health yesterday. We went back Back to the department and said, well, what does all of that mean? Uh, we didn't hear any of uh, that uh, when we were speaking to any of the representatives, uh, the consultants who spoke to the programme on behalf of the HSE. Uh, wh- what's involved in it? Uh, when is it going to be completed and so on? Uh, and they've said basically they don't really know much about it, that the review is being led by the HSE, uh, because we asked uh, what's happening, what does, what's involved in this review and when is it going to be complete and they said, well, that's a question for the HSE. Uh, so we've asked the HSE and uh, we'll get back to you with a response to that as soon as we hear back from the HSE. So no discussions have taken place, it seems, uh, on the future of the hospital between the Minister and anybody else since the 21st of June. Uh, but there is a review underway uh, and you would imagine trying to read between the lines it's very hard to do this because uh, we can't ask anybody directly we're sending emails out to people because the minister still isn't available to the local media so anyway um, it, it seems that when the HSE comes back with the review uh, which the minister has said look go and prove your case if you think you can do this prove it uh, when they come back and they prove their case or they make their case uh, the minister then I imagine uh, and again it's just trying to read between the lines the minister will go and talk to all of these people and have meaningful discussions with all of these people that he was talking about having meaningful discussions with on the 21st of June uh, that's all we can conclude at the moment uh, but we will be of course returning to this and keep you updated uh, some comments Anne in touch with us about Cashless Bank saying she's disgusted by AIB's move to make 70 branches cashless. Given the public outcry to the announcement, surely the company should reconsider this move. It was only a few years back that it was the taxpayers' money that bailed out the very same bank when they got themselves into trouble. Now, they're repaying that kindness by making their branches obsolete for many of their customers, particularly elderly people. Not everyone wants to do their banking online and banks should be willing to cater for everyone's needs. Sarah is furious about this. She says it's hugely disrespectful to customers. How can they be allowed to do this without any consultation with customers? She's delighted to see so many kickback uh, against the move and she says it gives her hope that the company will have to roll back on its plans. It's causing unnecessary upset for customers. Thank you indeed. If you have been in touch with us so far today, a lot of people in touch with us. We'll come to more of those comments later in the programme. Michael Reed on LMFM. There was much anticipation in Kells, 
before little Danny Ryan was born on uh, the 12th uh, of, uh, I beg your pardon, on the 16th of October 2017. Four days later, Danny died in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. The hospital apologised to, to Danny's parents, Brenda and Michael, this week for deficits in care and the couple settled an action relating to Danny's birth. Earlier this morning, I spoke to the family's legal representative, Roger Murray, who's senior counsel and head of clinical negligence uh, with Callan Tansy Solicitors. Good morning, Michael. And just in relation to um, the situation that that poor Brenda and Michael found themselves in, uh, they were very excited. Uh, This was their first pregnancy. And Danny was a much uh, loved and anticipated um, baby. And they were very excited to learn um, that when they became pregnant uh, in early 2017. Um, so she was initially categorised, um, Brenda was, as a low-risk pregnancy. Um, but I suppose at about 25 weeks into her pregnancy, she was diagnosed as suffering from gestational diabetes. Um, now, this is becoming increasingly common. Perhaps one in five or one in six pregnancies could be complicated by gestational diabetes. Uh, and it sounds like uh, like its description. So it's a lady who otherwise wouldn't have diabetes, but develops it during the course of her pregnancy. And, and this can carry all sorts of risks for mum and baby. Um, and the risks to, to mum include high blood pressure, uh, the risk of preeclampsia or fits. Uh, and for babies, they can grow very, very quickly, very, very rapidly. Um, and the babies then can uh, become it can become difficult to deliver them. Uh, they can give rise to increased complications in terms of the, the manner of their delivery, and there's a massively increased risk of stillbirth. So it becomes a high-risk pregnancy, and, and that's what happened to Brenda in her about June. She became under the came under the care um, of the endocrine and obstetric antenatal clinic, uh, and a plan was formed. Uh, to ultimately deliver uh, Danny. Um, but the problem was that the plan was at, uh, to deliver him at 40 weeks plus nine days gestation. And that's where the difficulties arose. OK. Uh, she was told in September, Danny was born uh, in the middle of October. She was told in September, though, that she wasn't suitable for induction uh, and was uh, advised against a cesarean. Well, that's right. I mean, one of the issues in the case is that we say that there should have been a plan uh, to induce baby Danny or have a cesarean section uh, as early as possible and certainly not later than 40 plus <clears throat> six weeks gestation. And the defendants ultimately admitted that uh, in their defence and proffered a letter of apology because um, gestational diabetes is a very dangerous condition, as I've outlined. And once it gets beyond a certain point, uh, the risk to mum and baby increase. Mm. So there should have been a discussion about plan in terms of delivery. And, you know, there's a recent UK case called Montgomery. And this was a lady, very slight lady, Nadine Montgomery, uh, who developed gestational diabetes and should have been told the UK court held that because she was such a slight lady and she was going to have a very big baby, that she should have been counselled and warned about the cesarean section and the risks and benefits of it. Mm. So that decision has found its way into Irish law and Irish uh, medical planning. And when ladies are uh, developed gestational diabetes or where there's a concern that there might be a risk because of the size of the baby or otherwise, there should be a proper discussion about informed consent so that ladies and their partners can give fully informed consent 
to the mode of delivery and the plan thereafter. Okay, Uh, I take it on the 28th of September, the medical view was that Brenda should have a a natural birth, but that changed then on the 12th of October uh, when the hospital told her she should be induced and induced the next day. Well, that's right, but but she was scheduled for the next available date, which in fact was the 15th of October. Um, So not in fact the, the following day. Um, because there were no places available in the hospital. So that's why the planned induction took place on the 15th of October when she was at 40 weeks plus nine days gestation. Mm, Okay. Uh, And the induction didn't work, did it? No, the induction didn't work. Uh, She was administered with gel. She began to develop the pains. Uh, She underwent an internal examination. Uh, The heart trace initially showed a normal heart trace, um, but it became clear very quickly uh, that things were not well. So later on, uh, on the evening of the 16th, it became clear that baby Danny was in distress. His heart rate dropped to about 84 beats per minute and he ultimately had to be born by emergency cesarean section just before midnight on the 16th. Okay, and he, he suffered a, a lack of oxygen which led to a terrible brain injury. Uh, that's exactly right, uh, Michael. Um, what happened was that uh, every baby is able to withstand a certain amount of uh, I suppose, difficulty in the context of childbirth. But baby Danny's reserves were, were unfortunately very low because of the, the circumstances. Uh, and he didn't get enough oxygenated blood to his brain. And very sadly, he was born with a very significant brain injury. Uh, it took about four minutes of resuscitation before a heart was detected. Um, ultimately, he was transferred to the rotunda uh, for specialist intervention. Uh, but sadly, that care was uh, unfortunately too little, too late, and, and he died in the rotunda on the 20th of October. Okay. Uh, a very precious child uh, to both Brenda uh, and her husband, Mickey. Uh, and uh, they said that little Danny's story was at the centre of uh, the court case and his very, very short life. He, he lived for just four days uh, before dying under such tragic circumstances. Was it. Uh, in the opinion of the court, an unnecessary death. Uh, Had a a different medical opinion been reached on the 28th of September, uh, 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 the same opinion that was reached on the 12th of October, uh, could it be claimed that Danny would be with us today? Well, I suppose his death was tragic and uh, his parents got some solace. And indeed, his his aunts and his, his grandparents and extended family because he was an organ donor, even though he was a tiny baby, he was able, uh, and his family were able to donate uh, his heart valves. Um, so that was of some solace to them. But to go back to the point that you made, Michael, it was conceded in the case, in fact, in the defence that was put in by the HSE in October of 2021, um, that on the balance of probabilities, if labour had been adu- induced on not later than 40 plus 6 weeks gestation, the deceased would not have died. So that was a very significant Mm -hmm. moment for the family to get that defence because, as I'm sure you and your listeners are aware, um, cases involving the HSE invariably uh, are difficult because you're taking on a state institution, uh, you're challenging the medical establishment, um, and to get a written defence, a formal court document, which admits that in black and white, is quite a rare thing. But it took enormous courage uh, by Brendan Michael to push the case that far right. uh, and and that was almost as you can see four years after Danny's death so it did well, I was just going to ask you was that the first time uh, that uh, the hospital admitted liability uh, that uh, it, it agreed that a mistake had been made 
that's the first time exactly right Michael that things can be said to families in meetings or even apologies read out at inquests but legally until it's in black and white in a formal court document uh, expressions of regret like that don't equate to formal admissions of liability so mm. that was a massive vindication for the family bittersweet but a significant victory for them an apology was read in court, I understand, on behalf of the hospital. Was that the first time that the family had been apologised to by Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital? Well, there was an inquest uh, in 2019 and there were expressions of regret um, expressed to them at various stages. But the letter of apology, and we hear this uh, again and again, Michael, from people who contact us. Um, contrary to popular belief, people don't go and uh, have a path beaten to their solicitor's door. They'd rather not go to law, but they do so very, very reluctantly for a couple of main reasons. One is because of how they were treated afterwards. So if there was a proper explanation, families say, if there was proper accountability, if they'd been told everything chapter and verse, there'd be more understanding. And that's the first point. But Mm -hmm. the second is when families fully are fully aware of the facts and they know in their heart that things went wrong, when they see walls of silence put up and when they see obfuscation and evasion, and that really drives them to, to into the, the arms of the law because they really feel that it's adding insult to injury. So um, to get that letter of apology was really the massive vindication for them because it's one thing to get a formal and cold letter, a formal and cold defence um, that admits liability, but to get a, a letter of regret from the hospital uh, I'm pr- apologising profusely and profoundly for what happened it really is something that will mean a lot, in particular in future years, to mm. Brendan, Michael, mm. and to their children who have been born since, yeah. uh, Keelan, Keelan and Robbie. So yeah. mm. that, that letter is really uh, very important for them. OK, uh, and you spoke about the excitement uh, that they felt, both parents felt, uh, before the birth of little Danny, uh, and how that uh, changed very quickly. Uh, and uh, I know that Brenda has been very active uh, and has been campaigning for open disclosures. I've seen part of her campaign and something that she wrote in 2020, going back quite a number of years ago. And she spoke about how a celebration turned into a nightmare because she says the family weren't listened to because they were brushed aside. We were assured that they weren't short-staffed that night in the hospital. We were assured it wouldn't happen again to some other family, but unfortunately it continues to happen. And she says she'll continue to advocate for safer maternity care. Uh, And uh, she was hoping that open disclosures uh, would become uh, obligatory for hospitals uh, when it came to uh, this type of uh, condition, gestational diabetes and undoubtedly other uh, conditions uh, that women expecting babies uh, develop uh, during their pregnancy? Well, that's actually uh, absolutely right, Michael. I mean, we need to see a change in this country. And um, there's two things that uh, Brendan and Michael add their voices to, two campaigns. The first really is that we should have a statutory uh, provision here and framework so that coroner's recommendations are followed through on. So as I referenced earlier, there was a coroner's inquest in 2019. Uh, and at that inquest, the coroner came back with two recommendations. One is that the Royal College guidelines introduced in 2018 in relation to inducing women or ensuring their babies are delivered not later than 40 plus six weeks gestation when they have uh, diabetes should be rolled out across the country. And the second is that there should be an audit or a review of scanning Uh, ultrasound scanning antenatally to make sure that babies' growths are tracked because sometimes babies can grow, as you said, exponentially quickly. 
But again and again, we see that uh, coroners, well-intentioned coroners, well-intentioned juries come back with very good and very strong recommendations. But the question families ask is, well, what happens six months from then, a year from, from then? Is there any follow-up? Is there any follow-through? At the moment, the answer is no. There's a moral obligation, clearly, on state-run bodies or hospitals to follow through on recommendations. But there's no legal requirement for them to do so. We can contrast this with the situation in England and Wales, where there are statutory prevention of future death reports. And they mean that uh, when a coroner makes a recommendation to a state body, they must come back with eight weeks with confirmation of the steps they're taking to prevent future fatalities. So we think that a similar statutory framework needs to be adopted here. The Ryans agree, many, many families across the country agree, that state bodies should be legally obliged to come back and tell coroners and tell the families what steps they have taken to address dangerous situations. You mentioned open disclosure and candour, and this has been spoken about for many years. We're almost a decade now into discussions about open disclosure and candour, and we still don't have a statutory obligation on medics to sit down with families and tell them. Again, there's an ethical obligation, and the Medical Council guidelines and the HSE own guidelines give a clear indication that open disclosure and proper discussions should happen with families. We saw the 2019 Patient Safety Bill, uh, which hasn't uh, come to fruition yet, and which hasn't been enacted into formal legislation. Um, But that was a missed opportunity, many families felt, because it didn't spell out exactly what the mandatory requirements were. We would say, on behalf of Brendan, Michael, and all the other families that we represent, that open disclosure shouldn't just be a box-ticking exercise. It shouldn't just be, here's a letter, a quick meeting, and away you go. One of the leading experts in relation to open disclosure asks the question, when is open disclosure, when is disclosure finished? It's finished when the patient says it is. It should be a process, not an event, not a simple box-ticking exercise. And we have seen again and again lip service paid to the, the concept of open disclosure where medics or hospitals say accurately, well, we had a meeting or we gave a letter, but parents and sometimes family members come away less, more bewildered and less informed than, than previously. And when attempts are made then to meet again, or to find out what happened in relation to reviews, there's complete radio silence. I have seen that. It shouldn't happen. It should stop. Okay. Uh, we we should extend our sympathy, obviously, uh, to the Ryan family. Uh, and indeed, I know uh, that they'll be listening to us uh, this morning and that little Danny who lived for just four days will be at the centre of uh, their thoughts. And I'm sure uh, the sympathy of all of our, our listeners uh, is felt right across the region for the terrible, terrible thing that they've had to endure as a result of a failure in the duty of care that they should have enjoyed through the health service. We've been communicating, obviously, with the family, and they've asked you, Roger, to make exactly those points with us on the programme in the hope that they will help other families. And uh, perhaps I can conclude uh, with something uh, that Brenda said on social media last night. Uh, She wrote, We found out I was pregnant on my 35th birthday and for my 40th 
we got admittance of liability, a list of deficits in our care, followed by an apology. We didn't just have Danny for the four days after he was born. We had him for 41 weeks and three days before that. Danny Ryan, we hope you and your buddies help stop any further heartache for other families. And we thank everyone for their kind words. As I say, Brenda wrote that on social media last night. Roger, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, on the programme this morning uh, and telling us about uh, the circumstances of little Danny Ryan's life uh, and uh, the experience that his parents has had. You're most welcome. Thank you. Roger Murray is Senior Counsel and Head of uh, the Clinical Negligence Unit with Callan Tansy Solicitors. And he spoke to me before we came on air this morning. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Mandate Trade Union is lodging pay claims of uh, between 7.7 and 7.9% on behalf of staff working in Dunn's stores. They're also looking for more holidays for their members uh, and indeed improvements uh, to the staff discount scheme. Let's hear a little bit more about this. Jerry Light is uh, the General Secretary with Mandate. And a very good morning to you, Jerry. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us on the, the programme this morning. Uh, pay claims on this scale would have been unheard of up uh, until recently, but I, I guess this is a sign of the times, is it? Yeah, good morning, Michael. Indeed, thanks for having me on. I think it is, Michael. I think it's a sign of the times, not only in respect of the current uh, extraordinary high rates of inflation and uh, the recession that I think is actually happening at this moment in time, even though people haven't technically declared we're into recession, but ordinary workers, our members, and every other worker I did in the state, I think, is suffering while the, 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 the real sort of life and daily experience of a recession. So you're right. It's happened uh, as a result of uh, the cost of living. No doubt about that. But I think even more importantly, uh, Michael, what's happened here is retail workers, and from our perspective, our members, have re-evaluated their role in, 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 in the work that they do. They've just come through two years of the greatest uncertainty and the greatest risk to their, to their health and safety, which was COVID. They were at the, 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 the cold face from day one. Uh, from day one, we didn't know the, the extent of, the, of the, the risk that they were facing. Uh, there was no blueprint. We had to sort of deal with it as, as we found it. And what retail workers, I think, largely have done, our experience has shown, they've either resigned and they've got out of retail or, they, or they've reassessed their value in their mind of what their work is. Mm. And they're clearly saying now, not only in Dunn's, but indeed in other major companies, they're really saying now, we're worth more than uh, actually what we're being paid. And we want all of those fine platitudes that were directed at us mm. during the, the height of COVID when we were indeed classified as essential workers. We want to know some tangible uh, reward for that, not just words alone, we'll pay the bills. Yeah, we're, we're worth a, a lot more or close to 8% more than they're being paid in Duns. That's the argument you'll be making with the employer. You'll also be looking for increased sick leave, uh, up to eight weeks paid sick leave uh, and uh, indeed full pay on maternity and paternity leave. Um, now, there is a warning against claims on this scale, Jerry. that what you end up doing is chasing inflation. So you get an 8% increase for your members uh, and then they go out to do their shopping and everything is 8% more expensive. Uh, so, in fact, they're not up on the deal at all. Well, I, I think it would be a sad day that uh, any justifications would increase the prices would be put down to increase the wages and to pay people decently and to give them proper terms and conditions of employment. I think that would be a sad day if we reached that point. And indeed, employers 
have a lot of scope in respect to uh, setting their margins and the profits that they take, Michael, because the context of this particular claim, it's, it's been directed at uh, the leading retailer based on market share in the country, which has done stores, wholly owned indigenous Irish business, hugely profitable, hugely successful. And indeed, the businesses such as Dunn's over the course of the pandemic increased their market share and increased their profit margins as mm. well. So there's not that natural link between if you give workers who are relatively modestly paid, I would have to say, Michael, right? No. The pay increase to reflect the circumstances in which they dealt with over the last two years and the current circumstances with regard to cost of living. I think if you reflect that sort of and, and try and justify then an increase in prices on the back of that, I think that would be a sad day for any employer, any business to do that. There are many ways to absorb these costs. Number one uh, way, of course, would be to take less profits out of the business and redistribute them more fairly amongst the workforce. Mm, okay, and maybe Duns can do that, uh, but maybe other employers can't, uh, and that um, comes back to that argument of chasing uh, inflation. Uh, but uh, you talk about modest pay and modest pay claims. Uh, you're asking for uh, an hourly rate of 19.25 for someone who's been employed by Duns for 10 years or, or more. Uh, that works out at about 40,000 a year, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and 25 days holidays then uh, to go with that. Um, some people would say that's uh, well paid, very well paid, some would say. Well, they might, and it all depends which perspective you're coming from, Michael, but I think for far too long, and one thing COVID has done, it's shone a light on the value of retail work and the contribution made by retail workers. For far too long, retail workers were, were viewed as some kind of secondary workforce, yet the, the businesses in which they work are generating huge profits for their owners. Hmm. I wouldn't consider that a king's ransom. I wouldn't consider that an, an extraordinary amount of pay in respect of sort of yeah, the, 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 the circumstances that workers have to face, not just our members, okay. but right across the piece, not only in respect of the living costs, mm. but all the other associated costs, such as childcare and the inability to put a roof over your mm. head. Mm. I think everything has to be seen in perspective. And also, remember, Michael, that is uh, after 10 years. I think if you look at the other end of the scale, what we're asking for is the introduction of a rate of pay, which is just marginally above what is now considered to be the accepted living wage rate. Mm. So, you know, there's a 10-point yeah. scale there, and it's that every worker deserves a, a just reward for their efforts. And, of course, it always... 13, 30, I think, is what you're looking for, someone who right. starts and, and does, and it will increase after every that. year of service. So every business, yeah. Michael, I think mm. you just touched on it there. Every business and every claim against individual business has to be assessed on the basis of ability to pay. And we're saying, given the track record of done stores over many years now, there's a clear ability to meet this claim and do the right thing by their workers who looked after this business and the general public, indeed, over the last two years at some risk to their own health and safety. OK, well, they're obviously uh, not very happy workers uh, uh, in Dunn stores. Uh, you say in your press release that 65% of uh, your members employed by Dunn say that they're not being treated with dignity and respect by their employer, I take it. Uh, but... Um, what about the staff discount? What, what does that work out at? About 20%? Yeah, about 20%, yeah. It's limited to a €1,000 spend on the base of a 20% entitlement. That's about €200. Euro, uh, and that's, that's the level that it's currently at. But remember, all these sales, sales go back directly mm. into the business as well. Sure, but that's, I mean, that, that's, that's the equivalent of €2,400 net, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, and uh, added to forty thousand a year uh, plus eight weeks 
sick leave, 25 days holiday, uh, and then um, you're also looking for full pay on maternity and paternity leave. Um, a lot of people would be quite envious of those conditions, Jerry. And, and I think what we need to do, and certainly as a trade union, we make no apology about it, Michael. Mm. We need to create the best terms and conditions that are possible within uh, each individual employment within the retail sector. Mm. Mm. As I said already, for far too long, retail work has been seen to be some kind of secondary, low-paid uh, uh, mm. work. And it shouldn't be like that. In fact, one of the things that we desire to do, and we are working, and, and even indeed and a group that I'm with nationally that's headed up by the Minister for Retail, a retail forum group, what we're trying to do is uh, now sort of present retail as a career of choice. Right. A career that enables somebody to go in, as they would have been mm. able to do when I started out as a trade union official many years ago, Michael. Mm. They could go in and they could afford a mortgage and they could maybe afford yeah, a luxury. Well, well I mean, I think it's widely accepted and widely expected that retail will be low-paid work. And quite often, we'd speak to you, Jerry, uh, and some of your colleagues uh, from the Mandate Trade Union that represents low-paid workers in retail. And that's probably why uh, I'm asking the questions that I am. And I, I think it's probably true to say that most people would be amazed to think that you would be earning 40000 getting 25 days holidays and so on, uh, and the extra 2400 uh, through the discount scene um, uh, working in Dons. Uh, but will these uh, pay rates uh, apply to members right across retail? Uh, do you expect uh, to seek uh, claims on the scale outside of Dons? Two things, Michael. Just to come back, because I think it's an important point just to clarify. He referenced €40,000 a year. One of the other phenomena within retail, and it's within our claim as well, is not everybody is guaranteed full working week, 39 mm. hours. Yeah. And the vast majority of people are part-time and get less than 39 hours. So even if you did have the, 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 the good fortune to reach the top point of the pay scale and the, and the rates that we're seeking, there's no absolutely guarantee that full-time hours follow that. That's mm. the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd, I'd respond to is a valid question. Every claim is designed on, on, on around two basic fundamentals. One, we consult with our members, and two, it's pitched on the basis of the ability of the individual employers to pay. So we don't know the, 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 the outcome in respect to DUNS. We don't know yet. We only launched the claim yesterday. Mm. And every other claim then will be tailored to suit the needs of the individual business and the workers within that businesses that we deal with. Okay. Well, I think you've given a, a lot of people a lot of food for thought and uh, you may be hearing from uh, more of your members uh, outside of uh, Don's uh, who'll be looking for uh, pay increases uh, on a similar scale. Uh, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning, Jerry. Jerry Light. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Jerry Light is uh, the General Secretary of the Mandate Trade Union. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we've been told uh, for some time to expect an increase in interest rates. Uh, the European Central Bank will make its announcement today. There is a question over, though, what it has decided. Let's uh, speak uh, to personal finance expert Paul Merriman, who is uh, the CEO of AskPaul.ie and Pax Financial. A very good morning to you, Paul. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, I suppose a quarter of a, a percent uh, is inevitable. That's what was expected, I think, to begin with, but it could actually be more than that today. Uh, yes, you're dead correct. It could be uh, 0.5%. I think the European Central Bank will probably stick to 025 to ease... Uh, people into the rate increases that are going to come their way. I mean, we're probably going to settle at about 2% between now and the end of next year, which means 
we're going to see approximately eight rate increases, uh, which is going to be considerable for people. Um, you're going to be affected if you're on a tracker automatically. Uh, there's calls for the banks to hold off passing those rates on the variable rate customers. Uh, but if you're on a tracker rate, uh, it's going up pretty much ASAP. You're going to be getting letters. And you're going to expect probably eight letters by the end of next year. Now, it's important to realise the reason why the central bank mm-hmm. going to put rates up is to try and curb inflation. Obviously, inflation's being out of control. It's up nearly 9% now. Um, if 2% doesn't help or it doesn't do it, there's nothing to say they won't go higher. It could be 3 could be 4%. Mm. Uh, so it, this is this is very concerning what's happening um, and it should be concerning for practically every mortgage customer in the country. Uh, if you're on a fixed rate, now you're looking to fix for a long term, you're, you're probably you're going to be okay for the long term. But if you're coming off a fixed rate, maybe next year, the year after, you're probably going to be coming off a fixed rate onto a much higher interest rate then uh, in a couple of years' time. So it affects practically every mortgage holder, bar those that may have been lucky enough to fix for you know maybe okay. 20 years. Uh, but it, it, it is concerning, uh, and it's something that should be taken. Um, you are on a very very rate customers out there. Mm. <laughs> There's no need to be on a very rate. Some of those very rates are already 4.5%. Um, you know, they're excruciatingly high. So if you are a very bright customer, ring your bank today and ask them what your fixed rate options are. You shouldn't mm. be on a variable rate unless you're going to pay your mortgage down considerably over the next 12 to 18 months. But I pretty guarantee that not 200,000 people are in that position. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of people sleepwalking uh, with their mortgage, not knowing what's going on with the mortgage, not giving a bit of, bit of care, or getting qualified advice around it. But it's the biggest financial decision you're probably ever going to make in your financial life. Uh, so it's very important that you uh, give it give it a bit of care, mm. uh, get qualified advice and see what your options are. And uh, you could and, probably and, possibly fix a, a, at a rate lower than you're paying oh, on a, a variable. Oh, I can pretty much guarantee anyone yeah. that's on a variable rate, the bank would give you a lower, lower fixed uh, rate. And, though, uh, and, though, and those rates are going to increase uh, and uh, in exactly. line with that, the fixed rates will increase, I'm sure. Yeah, they will indeed. Yeah. Now they're saying that there is calls in the banks and first the parent TSB have already come out, their CEO saying they're looking to maybe absorb the first yeah. rate increase, one or two rate increases for very bright customers but they'll only do it for the first one or two uh, but like I said if you're getting eight rate increases you might be spared now whereas the banks in Ireland as well they're, they're, they're getting a bit more competitive as Elster Bank and KBC leave really only left with Bank of Ireland AAB and Permit DSB and there's non-bank lenders out there like Finance Ireland Advent Money they have phenomenal 20 year fixed rates which mm. I think people should really consider uh, you can't get them by going direct so you would need to speak to a, a financial broker mortgage broker or central financial planner uh, to get access to those lenders but um, yeah, I, I think the, the, the Irish main, the main banks there mentioned, Premises, AIB, and Bank of Ireland, they will probably be competitive enough with each other to maybe absorb a couple of the rate increases. Mm. Um, but yeah, look, main thing is get advice if you have a mortgage. Uh, it's a quite a complex product, and there's loads of options out in the marketplace. Uh, but this, you know, by changing from a rate, maybe a, a 3.5% fixed rate to a 2.5% fixed rate. Depending on the size of your mortgage, if it's kind of over 300,000, you could be saving tens of thousands of interest uh, over the next 20, 30 years, depending mm. on the term of your mortgage. So <laughs> there actually is massive money up for grabs for people. Um, I think we're so used to looking at it on a monthly basis as only it's 80 euro or 50 euro. But over 20, 25 years, it ends up being thousands of difference in your back pocket.
Um, and you work very hard to get your money into your bank account. So don't be letting the banks just take it on interest uh, for, yeah. for no reason. Do they know what they're doing? Uh, or, or, or is there an element uh, of chance in all of this? Uh, it seems as though they've been caught on the hop already, despite all of the expertise. And I'm sure there's uh, some of the most brilliant minds in the world in the European Central Bank. Uh, they seem uh, to be looking at the possibility of increasing interest rates by 0.5 rather than 0.25% uh, because inflation... Uh, has risen uh, at a faster rate than had been anticipated uh, and, yeah. uh, and there is there is the chance that increasing interest rates could do more harm than good well the quarter I mean the, the people uh, fail to realize the reason they're increasing interest rates is to suck money out of the economy so people will spend money on the mortgage rather than paying for st- for stuff in, in retail shops or in the marketplace and that just takes the heat out of the economy uh, that's not really what the interest rate, what inflation is about at the moment. Obviously, about uh, Russia and the Ukraine and the invasion there, uh, and energy prices. That's really driving us. So, sucking money out of the economy mightn't actually do that much. And this is where the danger lies. I mean, central banks, uh, their people at the end of the day, uh, you know, some of possibly the best minds. Uh, be some people debate that uh, in the European uh, Union, sitting down around the table, deciding what to do. But they're obviously very nervous that they could get it really, really wrong as well, and their legacies are built on this. So I do think you probably see 0.25 today, and it will probably go up to 0.5 then come September. So I do think they'll start jumping to 0.25 very quickly, but I think they'll ease themselves into it. If uh, fuel prices don't come under control somewhat over the next six to 12 months, um, and if inflation hasn't died down as a result, uh, I think you're going to see aggressive rate increases because now that will be a disaster because if you do see a rate increase at 3 or 4%, that means they haven't curbed inflation. Now we have really high inflation and really high interest rates. And that's consumers getting absolutely hammered. And the higher the interest rate, don't forget, we think about it from our own point of view, as in how we pay our mortgage, how we pay our car loans. But businesses also borrow. uh, And if you have businesses Mm. that are now causing them more, they won't employ many people. People can't buy their stock or buy their goods. Mm. So that's when you end up slipping into a recession and you end up with people being unemployed. And countries. This can go really, really wrong fairly quickly. Countries, Um, states borrow. uh, And uh, I think there'll be a lot of attention on Italy from what I've been reading. Yes. Uh, yeah. it, it may be uh, too uh, expensive for Italy to borrow and that uh, could uh, lead to a change of heart uh, our time is yeah. up I can hear the music playing Paul but thank yeah. you indeed uh, for Thanks joining for us thank you very day. much indeed Thanks. that's personal finance expert Paul Merriman uh, who is the CEO of askpaul.ie and Pax Financial that's our programme for today God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com.
Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.